Section 1 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janet O'Reilly from Utah. www.oreilly-fire.com. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Introduction and Part 1. To Alice Paul through whose brilliant and devoted leadership the women of america have been able to consummate with gladness and gallant courage their long struggle for political liberty this book is affectionately dedicated preface this book deals with the intensive campaign of the militant suffragists of america nineteen thirteen to nineteen nineteen to win a solitary thing the passage by congress of the national suffrage amendment and franchising women it is the story of the first organized militant political action in America to this end. The militants differed from the pure propagandists in the woman suffrage movement, chiefly in that they had a clear comprehension of the forces which prevail in politics. They appreciated the necessity of the propaganda stage and the beautiful heroism of those who had led in the pioneer agitation, but they knew that this stage belonged to the past, these methods were no longer necessary or effective. For convenience sake, I have called Part 2, Political Action, and Part 3, Militancy, although it will be perceived that the entire campaign was one of militant political action. The emphasis, however, in Part 2 is upon political action, although certainly with a militant mood. In Part 3, dramatic acts of protest, such as are now commonly called militancy, are given emphasis as they acquired a greater importance during the latter part of the campaign. This does not mean that all militant deeds were not committed for a specific political purpose. They were. But militancy is as much a state of mind, an approach to a task, as it is the commission of deeds of protest. It is the state of mind of those who in their fiery idealism do not lose sight of the real springs of human action. There are two ways in which this story might be told. It might be told as a tragic and harrowing tale of martyrdom, or it might be told as a ruthless enterprise of compelling a hostile administration to subject women to martyrdom in order to hasten its surrender. The truth is, it has elements of both ruthlessness and martyrdom, and I have tried to make them appear in a true proportion. It is my sincere hope that you will understand and appreciate the martyrdom involved, for it was the conscious voluntary gift of beautiful, strong, and young hearts, but it was never martyrdom for its own sake. It was martyrdom used for a practical purpose. The narrative ends with the passage of the amendment by Congress. The campaign for gratification, which extended over 14 months, is a story in itself. The gratification of the amendment by the 36th and last state legislature proved as difficult to secure from political leaders as the 64th and last vote in the United States Senate. This book contains my interpretations, which are, of course, arguable, but it is a true record of events. Dora Stevens, New York, August 1920. I do pray, and that most earnestly and constantly, for some terrific shock to startle the women of the nation into a self-respect which will compel them to see the absolute degradation of their present position, which will compel them to break their yoke of bondage and give them faith in themselves, which will make them proclaim their allegiance to women first. 
The fact is, women are in chains, and their servitude is all the more debasing because they do not realize it. Oh, to compel them to see and feel, and to give them the courage and the conscious to speak and act for their own freedom, though they face the scorn and contempt of all the world for doing it. Susan B. Anthony, 1872 Part 1. Leadership Chapter 1. A Militant Pioneer Susan B. Anthony Susan B. Anthony was the first militant suffragist. She has been so long proclaimed only as the magnificent pioneer that few realize that she was the first woman to defy the law for the political party of her sex. The militant spirit was in her many early protests. Sometimes these protests were supported by one or two followers. More often they were solitary protests. Perhaps it is because of their isolation that they stand out so strong and beautiful in a turbulent time in our history when all those about her were making compromises. It was this spirit which impelled her to keep alive the cause of the enfranchisement of women during the passionate years of the Civil War. She held to the last possible moment that no national exigency was great enough to warrant abandonment of woman's fight for independence. But one by one her followers deserted her. She was unable to keep even a tiny handful steadfast to this position. She became finally the only figure in the nation appealing for the rights of women when the rights of black men were agitating the public mind. Ardent abolitionist as she was, she could not tolerate without indignant protest the exclusion of women in all discussions of emancipation. The suffrage war policy of Miss Anthony can be compared to that of the militants of a half-century later when confronted with the problem of this country's entrance into the world war. The war of the rebellion over and the emancipation of the Negro man written into the Constitution, women contended they had a right to vote under the new 14th Amendment. Miss Anthony led in this agitation urging all women to claim the right to vote under this amendment. In the national election of 1872, she voted in Rochester, New York, her home city, was arrested, tried and convicted of the crime of voting without having a lawful right to vote. I cannot resist giving a brief excerpt from the court records of this extraordinary case. So reminiscent is it of the cases of the suffrage pickets tried nearly 50 years later in the courts of the national capital. After the prosecuting attorney had presented the government's case, Judge Hunt read his opinion, said to have been written before the case had been heard, and directed the jury to bring in a verdict of guilty. The jury was dismissed without deliberation, and a new trial was refused. On the following day, this scene took place in that New York courtroom. Judge Hunt, ordering the defendant to stand up. Has the prisoner anything to say why sentence shall not be pronounced? Miss Anthony. Yes, Your Honor. I have many things to say, for in your ordered verdict of guilty you have trampled underfoot every vital principle of our government. My natural rights, my civil rights, my political rights, my judicial rights are all alike ignored. Robbed of the fundamental privilege of citizenship, I am degraded from the status of a citizen to that of a subject, and not only myself individually, but all my sex are by your honor's verdict doomed to political subjection under this so-called republican form of government judge hunt the court cannot listen to a rehearsal of argument which the prisoner's counsel has already consumed three hours in presenting miss anthony may it please your honor i am not arguing the question but simply stating the reasons why sentence cannot in justice be pronounced against me 
Your denial of my citizen's right to vote is the denial of my right of consent as one of the governed, the denial of my right of representation as one taxed, the denial of my right to a trial by jury of my peers as an offender against the law, therefore the denial of my sacred right to life, liberty, property, and Judge Hunt, the court cannot allow the prisoner to go on. Miss Anthony, but your honor will not deny me this one and only poor privilege of protest against this high-handed outrage upon my citizens' rights. May it please the court to remember that since the day of my arrest last November, this is the first time that either myself or any person of my disfranchised class has been allowed a word of defense before judge or jury. Judge Hunt. The prisoner must sit down. The court cannot allow it. Miss Anthony. Of all my persecutors from the corner grocery politician who entered the complaint to the United States Marshal, Commissioner, District Attorney, Your Honor on the bench, not one in my peer, but each and all are my political sovereigns. Precisely as no disfranchised person is entitled to sit upon the jury and no woman is entitled to franchise, so none but a regularly admitted lawyer is allowed to practice in the courts, and no woman can gain admission to the bar. Hence, jury, judge, counsel, all must be of superior class. Judge Hunt. The court must insist the prisoner has been tried according to the established forms of law. Miss Anthony. Yes, Your Honor, but by forms of law, all made by men, interpreted by men, administered by men, in favor of men and against women, and hence your honor's ordered verdict of guilty against a United States citizen for the exercise of the citizen's right to vote, simply because that citizen was a woman and not a man, as then the slaves who got their freedom had to take it over or under or through the unjust forms of the law, precisely so now must women take it to get their right to a voice in this government. And I have taken mine, and mean to take it at every opportunity. Judge Hunt. The court orders the prisoner to sit down. It will not allow another word. Miss Anthony. When I was brought before your honor for trial, I hoped for a broad interpretation of the Constitution and its recent amendments, which should declare all United States citizens under its protecting aegis. But failing to get this picture, failing even to get a trial by jury, not of my peers, I ask not leniency at your hands, but rather the full rigor of the law. Judge Hunt. The court must insist. Here the prisoner sat down. The prisoner will stand up. Here Miss Anthony rose again. The sentence of the court is that you pay a fine of a hundred dollars and the costs of the prosecution. Miss Anthony. May it please your honor, I will never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty, and I shall earnestly and persistently continue to urge all women to the practical recognition of the old revolutionary maxim, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Judge Hunt. Madam, the court will not order you stand committed until the fine is paid. Miss Anthony did not pay her fine and was never imprisoned. I believe the fine stands against her to this day. On the heels of this sensation came another of those dramatic protests which until the very end she always combined with political agitation. The nation was celebrating its first centenary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence at Independence Square, Philadelphia. After women had been refused by all in authority, a humble half-moment in which to present to the centennial 
the Women's Declaration of Rights, Miss Anthony insisted on being heard. Immediately after the Declaration of Independence had been read by a patriot, she led a committee of women who with platform tickets had slipped through the military straight down the center aisle of the platform to address the chairman, who, pale with fright and powerless to stop the demonstration, had to accept her document. Instantly the platform, graced as it was by national dignitaries and crowned heads, was astir. The women retired, distributing to the gasping spectators copies of their declaration miss anthony had reminded the nation of the hollowness of its celebration of an independence that excluded women susan b anthony's aim was the national enfranchisement of women as soon as she became convinced that the constitution would have to be specifically amended to include woman suffrage she set herself to this gigantic task for a quarter of a century she appealed to congress for action and to party conventions for suffrage endorsement when however she saw that congress was obdurate as an able and intensely practical leader she temporarily directed the main energy of the suffrage movement to trying to win individual states with women holding the balance of political power she argued the national government will be compelled to act she knew so well the value of power she went to the west to get it she was a shrewd tactician with prophetic insight without compromise to those women who would yield to party expediency as advised by men or be diverted into support of other measures she made answer in a spirited letter to lucy stone so long as you and i and all women are political slaves it ill becomes us to meddle with the weightier discussions of our sovereign masters it will be quite time enough for us with self-respect to declare ourselves for or against any party upon the intrinsic merit of its policy when men shall recognize us as their political equals if all the suffragists of all the states could see eye to eye on this point and stand shoulder to shoulder against every party and politician not fully and unequivocally committed to equal rights for women we we should become at once the moral balance of power which could not fail to compel the party of highest intelligence to proclaim woman suffrage the chief plank of its platform until that good day comes i shall continue to invoke the party in power and each struggling party to get into power to pledge itself to the emancipation of our enslaved half of the people she did not live to see enough states grant suffrage in the west to form a balance of power with which to carry out this policy she did not live to turn this power upon an unwilling congress but she stood to the last despite this temporary change of program the great dramatic protagonist of national freedom for women and its achievement through rebellion and practical strategy with the passing of miss anthony and her leadership the movement in america went conscientiously on endeavoring to pile up state after state in the free column gradually her followers lost sight of her aggressive attack and her objective the enfranchisement of women by congress they did not sustain her tactical wisdom this reform movement like all others when stretched over a long period of time found itself confined in a narrow circle of routine propaganda it lacked the power and initiative to extricate itself though it had many eloquent agitators with devoted followings it lacked generalship the movement also lost miss anthony's militant spirit her keen appreciation of the fact that the attention of the nation must be focused on minority issues by dramatic acts of protest susan b anthony's fundamental objective her political attitude toward attaining it and her militant spirit were revived in suffrage history in nineteen thirteen when alice paul also of quaker background entered the national field as leader of the new suffrage forces in america chapter two a militant general alice paul 
Most people conjure up a menacing picture when a person is called not only a general, but a militant one. In appearance, Alice Paul is anything but menacing. Quiet, almost mouse-like, this frail young Quakeress sits in silence and baffles you with her contradictions. Large, soft gray eyes that strike you with a positive impact make you feel the indescribable force and power behind them. A mass of soft brown hair, caught easily at the neck, makes the contour of her head strong and graceful. Tiny, fragile hands that look more like an X-ray picture of hands rest in her lap in Quakerish pose. Her whole atmosphere, when she is not in action, is one of strength and quiet determination. In action, she is swift, alert, almost panther-like in her movements. She is dressed always in a simple frock, preferably soft shades of purple. She conforms to an individual style and taste of her own rather than to the prevailing vogue. I am going recklessly on trying to tell you what I think about Alice Paul. It is difficult, for when I begin to put it down on paper, I realize how little we know about this laconic person, how abundantly we feel her power, her will, and her compelling leadership. In an instant and vivid reaction, I am either congealed or inspired, exhilarated or depressed, sometimes even exasperated, but always moved. I have seen her very presence in headquarters change in the twinkling of an eye, the mood of fifty people. It is not through their affections that she moves them, but through a naked force, a vital force, which is indefinable, but of which one simply cannot be unaware. Aiming primarily at the intellect of an audience or an individual, she almost never fails to win an emotional allegiance. I shall never forget my first contact with her. I tell it here as an illustration of what happened to countless women who came in touch with her to remain under her leadership to the end. I had come to Washington to take part in the demonstration on the Senate in July 1913 en route to a much-needed, as I thought, holiday in the Adirondacks. "'Can't you stay on and help us with a hearing next week?' said Miss Paul. "'I'm sorry,' said I, "'but I have promised to join a party of friends in the mountains for a summer holiday and—' "'Holiday?' said she, looking straight at me. Instantly ashamed at having mentioned such a legitimate excuse, I murmured something about not having had one since before entering college. "'But can't you stay?' she said. I was lost. I knew I would stay. As a matter of fact, I stayed through the heat of a Washington summer, returned only long enough at the end of the summer to close up my work in state suffrage, and came back again to join the groups at Washington. And it was years before I ever mentioned a holiday again. Frequently she achieved her end without even a single word of retort. Soon after Miss Paul came to Washington in 1913, she went to call on a suffragist in that city to ask her to donate some funds toward the rent of headquarters in the capital. The woman sighed. I thought when Miss Anthony died, she said, that all my troubles were at an end. She used to come to me for money for a federal amendment, and I always told her it was wrong to ask for one, and that besides, we would never get it. But she kept right on coming. Then, when she died, we didn't hear any more about an amendment, and now you come again saying the same things Miss Anthony did. Miss Paul listened, said she was sorry, and departed. Very shortly, a check arrived at headquarters to cover a month's rent. A model listener, Alice Paul has unlimited capacity for letting the other person relieve herself of all her objections without contest. Over and over again I have heard this scene enacted. Miss Paul, I have come to tell you that you are all wrong about this federal amendment business. I don't believe in it. Suffrage should come slowly but surely by the states. And although I have been a lifelong suffragist, I just want to tell you not to count on me for feeling as I do. I cannot give you any help. A silence would follow. Then Miss Paul would say ingenuously, Have you a half hour to spare? I guess so would come slowly from the protestant. Why? Won't you sit down right here and put the stamps on these letters? We have to get them in the mail by noon. 
"'But I don't believe—' "'Oh, that's all right. These letters are going to women, probably a lot of whom feel as you do. But some of them will want to come to the meeting to hear our side.' By this time Miss Paul would have brought a chair, and that ended the argument. The woman would stay and humbly proceed to stick on endless stamps. Usually she would come back, too, and before many days would be an ardent worker for the cause against which she thought herself invincible. Once the state president of the conservative suffrage forces in Ohio, with whom I had worked the previous year, wrote me a letter pointing out what madness it was to talk of winning the amendment in Congress this session, and adding that nobody but a fool would ever think of it let alone speak of it publicly. She was wise in politics. We were nice, eager, young girls, but pretty ignorant. That was the gist of her remonstrance. My vanity was aroused. Not wishing to be called mad or foolish, I sat down and answered her in a friendly spirit, with the sole object of proving that we were wiser than she imagined. I had never discussed this point with anyone, as I had been in Washington only a few months, and it never occurred to me that we were not right to talk of getting the amendment in that particular session. But I answered my patronizing friend, in effect, that of course we were not fools, that we knew we would not get the amendment that session, but we saw no reason for not demanding it at once and taking it when we got it. When Miss Paul saw the carbon of that letter, she said quietly, pointing to the part where I had so nobly defended our sagacity, you must never say that again, and never put it on paper seeing my embarrassment she hastened to explain you see we can get it this session if enough women care sufficiently to demand it now alice paul brought back to the fight that note of immediacy which had gone with the passing of miss anthony's leadership she called a halt on further pleading wheedling proving praying it was as if she had bidden women stand erect with confidence in themselves and in their own judgments and compelled them to be self-respecting enough to dare to put freedom first, and so determine for themselves the day when they should be free. Those who had a taste of begging under the old regime, and who abandon it for demanding, know how fine and strong a thing it is to realize that you must take what is yours, and not waste your energy providing that you are, or will, some day, be worthy of a gift of power from your masters. On that glad day of discovery you have first freed yourself to fight for freedom. Alice Paul gave to thousands of women the essence of freedom. And there was something so cleansing about the way in which she renovated ideas and processes, emotions and instincts. Her attack was so direct, so clear, so simple and unafraid. And her resistance had such a fine quality of strength. Sometimes it was a roaring politician who was baffled by this non-resistant force. I have heard many an irate one come into her office in the early days to tell her how to run the woman's campaign and struggle in vain to arouse her to combat. Having begun a tirade, honor would compel him to see it through even without help from a silent adversary, and so he would get more and more noisy until it would seem as if one lone shout from him might be enough to blow away the frail object of his attack. Ultimately he would be forced to retire, perhaps in the face of a serene smile, beaten and angered that he had been able to make so little impression, and many the delicious remark and delightful quip afterward at his expense. Her gentle humor is of the highest quality. If only her opponents could have seen her amusement at their hysteria, at the very moment they were denouncing some plan of action and calling her fanatical and hysterical, she would fairly beam with delight to see how well her plan had worked. Her intention had been to arouse them to just that state of mind and how admirably they were living up to the plan. The hysteria was all on their side. She coolly sat back in her chair and watched their antics under pressure. But don't you know would come another thundering one? that this will make the democratic leader so hostile that 
the looked-for note of surprise never came she had counted ahead on all this and knew almost to the last shade of reaction that would follow from both majority and minority leaders all this had been thoroughly gone over first with herself then with her colleagues all the alarms had been rung the male politician could not understand why his well-meaning and generously offered advice caused not a ripple and not a change in plan such calm and concern he could not endure he was accustomed to emotional panics he was not accustomed to a leader who had weighed every objection every attack and counted the cost accurately her ability to marshal arguments for keeping her own followers in line was equally marked a superficial observer would rush into headquarters with miss paul don't you think it was a great tactical mistake to force president wilson at this time to state his position on the amendment will it not hurt our campaign to have it known that he is against us it is the best thing that could possibly happen to us if he is against us women should know it they will be aroused to greater action if he is not allowed to remain silent upon something in which he does not believe it will make it easier for us to campaign against him when the time comes and another time a friend of the cause would suggest would it not have been better not to have tried for planks in party platforms since we got such weak ones not at all we can draw the support of women with greater ease from a party which shows a weak hand on suffrage than from one which hides its opposition behind silence she had always to combat the fear of the more timid ones who felt sure with each new wave of disapproval that we would be submerged now i have been a supporter of yours every step of the way a fearful one would say but this is really going a little too far i was in the senate gallery to-day when two suffrage senators in speeches denounced the pickets and their suffrage banners they said that we were setting suffrage back and that something ought to be done about it exactly so come the ready answer from miss paul and they will do something about it only if we continue to make them uncomfortable enough of course even suffrage senators will object to our pickets and our banners because they do not want attention called to their failure to compel the administration to act they know that as friends of the measure their responsibility is greater and the fearful one was usually convinced and made stronger i remember so well when the situation was approaching its final climax in washington men and women both came to miss paul with this is terrible seven months sentence is impossible you must stop you cannot keep this up with an unmistakable note of triumph in her voice miss paul would answer yes it is terrible for us but not nearly so terrible as for the government the administration has fired its heaviest gun from now on we shall win and they will lose most of the doubters had by this time banished their fears and had come to believe with some akin to superstition that she could never be wrong so swiftly and surely did they see her policies and her predictions on every point vindicated before their eyes she has been a master at concentration a master strategist a great general with passionate beliefs on all important social questions she resolutely set herself against being seduced into other paths far from being naturally an ascetic she has disciplined herself into denials and deprivations cultural and recreational to pursue her objective with the least possible waste of energy not that she did not want above all else to do this thing she did but doing it she had to abandon the easy life of a scholar and the aristocratic environment of a cultured prosperous quaker family of moorestown new jersey for the rigors of a ceaseless drudgery and frequent imprisonment a flaming idealist conducting the fight with the sternest kind of realism a mind attracted by facts not fancies she has led fearlessly and with magnificent ruthlessness 
thinking thinking day and night of her objective and never retarding her pace a moment until its accomplishment i know no modern woman leader with whom to compare her i think she must possess many of the same qualities that lenin does according to authentic portraits of him cool practical rational sitting quietly at a desk and counting the consequences planning the next move before the first one is finished and if she has demanded the ultimate of her followers she has given it herself her ability to get women to work and never to let them stop is second only to her unprecedented capacity for work alice paul came to leadership still in her twenties with a broad cultural equipment degrees from swarthmore the university of pennsylvania and special study abroad in english universities had given her a scholarly background in history politics and sociology in these studies she had specialized writing her doctor's thesis on the stratus of women she also did factory work in english industries and there acquired first-hand knowledge of the industrial position of women in the midst of this work the english militant movement caught her imagination and she abandoned her studies temporarily to join that movement and to go to prison with the english suffragists convinced that the english women were fighting the battle for the women of the world she returned to america fresh from their struggle to arouse american women to action she came bringing her gifts and concentration to this one struggle she came with that inestimable asset youth and born of youth indomitable courage to carry her point in spite of scorn and misrepresentation among the thousands of telegrams sent miss paul the day the amendment finally passed congress was this interesting message from walter clark chief justice of the supreme court of north carolina southern democrat confederate veteran and distinguished jurist will you permit me to congratulate you upon the great triumph in which you have been so important a factor your place in history is assured some years ago when i first met you i predicted that your name would be written on the dusty roll the ages keep there were politicians and a large degree of public sentiment which could only be won by the methods you adopted it is certain that but for you success would have been delayed for many years to come end of section one of jailed for freedom by dora stevens reading by janet o'reilly of utah www.oreilly-fire.com